Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. And here, he's going to be looking at Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. This is the passage where Jacob leaves Beersheba and has a dream where a ladder reaches into heaven. He'll look at the structure of the passage and the theophanies involved. As usual, he'll deal with a lot of the typology in the passage. And finally, he'll talk about how this is a new Tower of Babel scene and how it actually anticipates Pentecost. We want to thank you for listening in on this episode. And here is James Shorten discussing Genesis chapter 28 and Jacob's dream. You remember that the center of the structure of the entire Jacob narrative is the birth of his children. Every recent commentary that I have that is sensitive to these kinds of discussions shows it that way. And the Bethel Theophany in chapter 28 where he leaves the land is matched up with the Peniel Theophany when he comes back into the land. In fact, if you look at the next page of your note, you can see that I've only isolated L to P to L out of the original structure. But we leave the land with Bethel, we arrive to Laban, we work, Laban turns against Jacob, we work for wives, we have the sons, we work for estate, Laban's sons turn against Jacob, Jacob leaves Laban and we meet God again with angels as we go back into the land. That's the fundamental structure. But now overlapping that is another one that really kind of becomes important at this point, and that's because there are two Bethel theophanies in the Jacob story. And if we look at it, we can do it this way as well. The entire thing is here. Anybody who wants to study it can do so. I'm not going to try to review it. Just notice at the center of it, from E to I to E, where we are today is leaving the land at Bethel. We come to Gentiles. We receive blessing in spite of the Gentiles. God comes and meets us in a theophany at Peniel, that's G. Jacob and Laban have an encounter, and it's tense and they separate. Excuse me. G is not the Peniel theophany. It's when God appears to Jacob in a dream and says, it's time for you to go. That's in 31, 10 to 21. Then Jacob and Laban meet, and they resolve their differences. And then we come to Peniel, and in this version, Peniel is the center of the Jacob story, where he wrestles with God and his name is changed to Israel. Then Jacob and Esau meet. And remember, Esau is parallel to Laban, and they work out their problems. We come and we build an altar, which conceptually correlates with the place where God meets him in G above. Then we come to the story of Shechem and the curse that comes upon Jacob and his family because of their wicked abuse of the covenant in chapter 31. So Gentiles and wrong dealing with the Gentiles resulting in a judgment. And then we come to Bethel again and God appears to him at Bethel and makes promises to him in chapter 35. On the outside of that on both sides is Rebekah the mother we just finished looking at this, and D, Rebecca keeps saying, why should I live? I'd like to die. Why do I have to keep living if neither one of my sons is going to be righteous and messianic? On the other side of this is Rachel and her son, and Rachel's death in connection with it. So there is a structure here. 
And this structure is secondary. It omits the story of Isaac and Gerar, which is part of the narrative. And it omits some other incidents. It's not as full. The other polystrophy is much larger and takes everything into account. So it's a secondary structure. This one is. It does, however, match the two Bethel incidents and has the additional value of putting the penile theophany at the center, wrestling with the angel. Such overlapping structures are not confusion, but wonderful examples of literary polyphony. In Revelation, we saw this happen a number of times. And we shall use both structures from here on to the end of the Jacob narrative. So there you have it. Next page, Jacob in exile. Here we are, and this is the section we're going to deal with now. Chapter 28, verse 10 to chapter 32, where we have uh, wrestling with God and encountering angels. And I've got both structures out there, so you can see that they're different. Compare them. We just did that, so they're here. And then down at the bottom of this page, I have some information that is very interesting, another evidence of God's superintendence of history. I just want to show you this. Abraham lived 175 years, which is 7 times 5 squared. Isaac lived 180 years, which is 5 times 6 squared. And Jacob lived 147 years, which is 3 times 7 squared. If you look at those numbers, they go 7, 5, 3 in descending order, and then 5, 6, 7 in ascending order. If we add up the digits in those multipliers, 7 plus 5 plus 5, we get 17. 5 plus 6 plus 6, we get 17. And 3 plus 7 plus 7, we get 17. Now, these can't be accidents. Now, if you don't believe this is history, you believe that the narrator of this story dreamed this up and put it in here to make it nice and neat. If you believe that it is history, then you believe God is the narrator, and God, as he wrote this play and caused these characters to act out their parts, supervised it so that it came out this way. Of course, that's what we believe. But it's fascinating to see that this is here. I think a lot of times Reformed people, they're so rationalistic that they're petrified of number structures and other things in the Bible, but they're all over the place, and here they are. And it's not only interesting, but at some point it's probably significant that they're here, but I don't know what the significance is, but in the action. Joseph, as scholars have pointed out, lived 110 years, which is 5 squared plus 6 squared plus 7 squared. So the numbers 5, 6, and 7 squared occur again with Joseph. You add up those digits, you get 36. How that relates to the rest, I don't know. And then Moses, it's interesting to consider, is 120 years old. And that's 2 times 3 times 4 times 5. Add those up and you get 14, which is twice 7. So that's all very interesting. The three most interesting are the three first patriarchs. And then Joseph kind of is the sum of them where these numbers show up. And there's lots of other lifespan links that they could have lived that wouldn't have any relevance at all. But here we have these striking coincidences. Too much to be an accident. Now, where to the text in front of us then? You can wow people with that information later on. Say, hey, did you know this? Look what I discovered in the text. It's like over in Exodus 38 where it talks about the amount of gold taken in with 730 shekels, which is 2 times 365, plus 29 talents, which is the number of days in a lunar month. 
So the goal that was taken in to build the tabernacle is 29 talents. That's the days in a month. And two times the number of days in a year of shekel. That stuff is not an accident. Makes gold with light and with the sun. Gold is solid light. Remember, what is liquid light? Got to know it. Important for this passage. Oil is liquid light. Gold is solid light. Peg these things because that's how they function. When you see oil put on something, you are seeing light put on something. All right. Now, here we are at chapter 28, 10 to 22, and I'm going to read from Fox with a few adjustments. He makes some translational decisions that I would make somewhat differently, and you can follow in whatever version you have. But we always read from the Fox translation first. Verses 10 to 22. Yaakov went out from Be'er Sheva and went toward Haran. And he encountered a certain place. And he had to spend the night there, for the sun had come in. And he took one of the stones of the place and set it at his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamt. Behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, its top reaching the heavens. And behold, messengers of God were going up and down on it. And behold, Yahweh was standing above him. That's really what it should read. Above it. And he said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Notice anything funny there? The God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your seed. Your seed will be like the dust of the earth. You will burst forth to the sea, to the east, to the north, and to the Negev. All the clans of the soil will find blessing through you and through your seed. Behold, I am with you. I will guard you wherever you go. and will bring you back to this soil. Indeed, I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And Yaakov woke from his sleep and said, Why, Yahweh is in this place. And I, I did not know it. And he was awestruck and said, How awe-inspiring is this place? Or he was fearful and said, How fearful is this place? This is none other than a house of God. And that is the gate of heaven. And Yaakov started early in the morning. And he took the stone that he had set at his head and set it up as a standing pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of the place Bethel, house of God, or house of the mighty one. However, Luz was the name of the city in former times. Jaco vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this way that I go, and will give me food to eat and garment to wear, and if I come back in peace to my father's house, Yahweh shall be God to me, and this stone that I have set up as a standing pillar shall become a house of God. And everything that you give me I shall tithe, tithe it to you. That's the text. This passage has a chiastic structure. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Or at least it has chiastic elements. Certain key words occur this way. The word place, this is not the entire passage, but the first part of it, or most of it, you can find the movement from sunset to midnight to sunrise here, which, of course, happens repeatedly in the Bible, and generally is associated with a chiastic structure. In other words, in Zechariah's night visions, you've got a chiastic structure where the sun goes down, sun's coming up in the morning, and at midnight the sins are taken away, and the uh, lampstand is revealed. 
so forth and so on. Well, here you've got the same thing. In the middle of the night, God comes and makes this covenant promise to him. This is Passover for Jacob. Midnight event. On either side of that, the words Yahweh are found. Verse 13, Yahweh was standing above the ladder. Jacob awoke in verse 16 and said, Yahweh is in this place. The word God appears on the outside of that. Messengers of God were going up and down on the ladder. Verse 12, this is a house of God. The ladder is a house of God if we take this D and D prime linked up. Heaven is the next thing out. Top was reaching to heavens in verse 12a, 17b. This is not only the house of God, but then it's the gate of heaven. Moving out, we got sunset and sunrise. At sunset, he takes the stones and puts one in his head. At sunrise, and the next thing we find here in verse 18, this has got 17c here, but it should be 18. He takes the stone that he set at his head, and then there's an emphasis on the place. Verse 11, he encountered a certain place, took one of the stones to the place, lay down in that place. Verse 19, he called the place Bethel. So that's a structure that's here, and it just kind of helps us to point us in the direction of a midnight transition that happens so often in the Bible. What do you see in the book of Acts? Can you think of any incidents in the book of Acts where there are midnight transitions for their Passovers? Yeah, and what happened? A young man fell out the window and died, was brought back to life again, and then they went back inside and broke bread. Passover. How about the shipwreck? That it was about midnight. Paul gathered them together and broke bread told them that they better abandon ship. About the Philippian jailer. There's a lot of midnight Passover events in Acts. It was in the middle of the night that Ruth came to Boaz. Jesus says, you got the virgins with the oil. At midnight, the bridegroom comes. And of course, in Genesis 15 is about the first time we find this. God makes a covenant with Abraham, and Abraham has a vision, and in his vision... He divides the animals in half, and then it says he went to sleep. And while he was asleep, he saw the Shekinah move between the parts of the animal. This is a midnight covenant-making transition event. Starts a new day. So as we come out of Egypt, day dawns, we're moving out of Egypt. Well, it's useful to think about these midnight transition events in the Bible, because there are a number of them, huh? There's also a parallel-type structure here in the passage in that you've got basically two paragraphs. We start off at a place in verse 11, verse 16 and 17. Jacob awoke from his dream. He goes to sleep in a place. He wakes up and does certain things. Verse 11, he puts the stones at his head. Verse 18, he takes the stone from his head and puts oil on it. And then the things that Jacob promises follow the same order as the things that God promises. God says in verse 15, I will be with you. In verse 20, Jacob says, if God will be with me, God says, I'll guard you wherever you go. That's the next thing in verse 15. Jacob says, if God will be with me and if he will guard me on my journey. Verse 15, God next says, I'll bring you back to this land. Jacob says, if I return in peace to my father's house. Finally, God says, I won't leave until I've done it all. And in verse 21 to 22, Jacob says, when God has done it all, I'll tithe to it. 
So there are formal structures here, particularly between God's promises and Jacob's promises, that are brought out by, again, the literary connection. Finally, there's a slight numerological element. The word God, Elohim, occurs seven times here. It does not occur in the name Bethel. El is just a short name. means mighty one. But the other times you see the word God in this passage, it's Elohim. It occurs seven times in Yahweh, four times. And part of it is that God appears and says, I am Yahweh and I am your God. So the whole business of who God is and who the protector is and who the covenant keeper is is important here and is probably why these particular words occur a significant number of times. Nothing else occurs a significant number of times here. And of course you don't have to have in any biblical paragraph a significant number, but you do so often it's always worth checking. It's never an accident when it shows up. It's just a literary device. Okay, we can read it now. Verse 10. Jacob went out from Beersheba, or seven wells, and went toward Haran. We say Haran. First of all, he's leaving seven wells, and we want to compare this with Ishmael's departure from Abraham, which was from the same place. That's in 21. Because Ishmael is kind of the first Jew. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. I thought I'd say that in other words. Yeah, the parallel structures between God's promise and Jacob's vow shows us the dialogue structures. Yeah. That's right. That's what I meant. God's promise and man's response are the two parallel columns here. God makes the promise to Jacob and then Jacob responds by promising back to him. Ishmael is circumcised first. And then he's replaced by Isaac. But God says he'll be his God and all the rest. And we noticed before the sacrifice of Isaac's story, how similar that is to this one. There's all kinds of stuff that's similar. The ram found in the bush, Ishmael under the bush, starting out early in the morning, going off from Beersheba, the lad almost dying, God's promises to him. All the rest, we looked at that in some detail earlier, just as we were getting into this story. But there's also some parallels here between Ishmael's being sent out from Abraham and Jacob's being sent out from Isaac. Which, put yourself in Jacob's shoes, Jacob knows about this story. You always want to understand that at any slot in biblical history, those people know about the things that happened before. And those things that happened before are promises to them. Well, he knows that Ishmael left. He knows that it was kind of a threatening thing for Ishmael to leave. He knows that God appeared to him. God gave him water. God said, I will be with you, which is exactly what he says here. I am with you. The Emmanuel promise. The same Emmanuel promise that was given to Ishmael. So Ishmael departs from seven wells from Beersheba. He leaves Abraham. He has to go out into the wilderness, and now Jacob is doing the same thing, but the parallels are there geographically and conceptually, which would be some assurance to Jacob in his position. He leaves and goes toward Haran. Abraham's exodus from Ur, at the end of chapter 11, they stopped in Haran for a while. Haran is the wilderness. Remember, in Exodus stories, you leave Egypt, 
you go to the wilderness, you go to the promised land. Or you leave Ur, and you go to Haran, and then the father dies off, the old generation dies off, and you come to the promised land. So this is the in-between place. Now in this case, Jacob is going to Haran, and he's going to Mesopotamia, the area of Ur, but he stops in the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that we encounter Mount Sinai, which is a ladder to heaven, and where God speaks to us and gives us the law. That's when we leave Egypt. Now Jacob, when he's in the wilderness, he encounters God. Elijah goes in the wilderness. He encounters God. When Ishmael, as a child, and Hagar are in the wilderness, they encounter God. God encounters us in the in-between places to set us up for the new place we're going to, and that's what happens here. He sets Jacob up for the new place that Jacob is going to go to. Ishmael encountered God after leaving, so does Jacob. I've made that point. Thus far on verse 10. This verse doesn't need to be in the Bible. This statement doesn't need to be in the Bible. That's my point. It could say, Jacob left and came to a certain place. When we're told that he left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and these place names already have pregnant associations and meaning, then we're supposed to bring those associations to the reading of this text. We know Beersheba is where Abraham and Isaac lived. You leave that, you're doing something that Ishmael's already done. Haran is the wilderness, the in-between place. So that's why it's important to notice it. Wouldn't have to be here. It's useless information unless these kinds of points are being made. Verse 11, a setting. He came to a certain place, and he had to spend the night there for the sun had gone down. He took one of the stones to the place, set it at his head, lay down in that place. It's nightfall, it's the beginning of a night of transition, where we'll have a midnight Passover type event. It's not so much a Passover, but it is a promise that will come in the middle of the night. The place is outside the city of Luz. Apparently Jacob didn't feel like he should go down into the city of Luz. Apparently he felt like he should stay outside that city. Why? Well, it's a Canaanite city. Maybe it was one of the Canaanites that was not converted, not in alliance with the people of Abraham. Of course, we know that some of them were. Some of the Philistines were. Abraham's day, Eshcol and Mamre were Canaanites who were in alliance with Abraham, converted Canaanites, but apparently these people weren't. You would expect he'd go to the city otherwise. But he stays outside the city. And where he is is Bethel. Now, Bethel is already important in the text. Let's look at it briefly. In chapter 12 of Genesis, Abram comes into the promised land, he comes to Shechem in verse 6, and he builds an altar there. And then in verse 8, he moved on from there to the mountain country east of Bethel, spread his tent, Bethel toward the sea, Ai toward the east, and he built an altar to Yahweh and called on the name of Yahweh. That is, he set up worship. He has got called out the name of Yahweh, which is interesting 
if that's a possible translation. Remember, in Joshua, after we came back into the Promised Land, we eventually went to Bethel and called out the covenant on these mountains. Some people standing on one mountain, some Gable and Er Ebel and Gerizim. That's basically at Bethel, and the covenant was shouted out over the land. At any rate, we're in a mountain area here, Bethel. Was this place called Bethel then? Probably not. Probably this text originally read, Abraham moved on from there to the mountain of country east of Luz and spread his tent, Luz toward the sea and Ai toward the east. But now it's been rewritten by Moses, well, Joseph possibly, whoever might have adjusted the text to make sure that we, under God's inspiration, of course, backdated this information so that we can make these connections. It's the house of God because Abraham has an altar and does worship there. But it's the same place, and this is an important place then. Plus, Abraham goes down into Egypt. The next thing we read, he continues toward the Negev. He goes down to Egypt. He comes back out of Egypt to verse 3. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel, as far as the place where his tent had been at the first between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar that he had made there at the beginning, and there Abram called out the name of Yahweh. Well, now look. <laughs> we leave the promised land. We go down here to Bethel. We go down here to Egypt. We come back up to Bethel. We come back up into the promised land. That's exactly what Jacob is doing, except it's not Egypt. I mean, geographically, he's going in the opposite direction. But he's making the same trek. Abram sets up this altar and prays at Bethel, goes down to Egypt, comes back, same place. That's what's going to happen with Jacob. You can go back a couple of pages here and look at your chiasm. The second structure, chiasm, we have this Bethel theophany. We go in the strange land, we come back at Peniel, but then we wind up eventually back at Bethel after some wilderness-type experiences, particularly dealing with the men of Shechem. So, the parallels are important. Jacob is doing something very similar to what Abraham did, because Jacob is the son of Abraham. I'm the God of your father Abraham and also the God of Isaac. Why would God say it that way to him? Why doesn't he say, I was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, your father? Replacement. Isaac fails as a father and Jacob is the replacement. We always think he's a replacement for Esau, but remember we've spent a lot of time showing that he's actually the replacement for Isaac. Isaac's failure as a father means Jacob has to now become the new father. He has to be the new Abraham. Isaac's failure to be an Abraham meant that Rebekah had to be an Abraham. And now Jacob has to be the Abraham, the father. So it's no accident that God said it this way to him. Now Abraham is the actual father of Jacob and Isaac. Isaac's in heaven, but he's not performed the particular task he was supposed to do, and so he's replaced. Now we come to the stone at the head. We always think of Jacob sleeping the way we sleep, with a stone under his head as a pillow, and I guess some cloth or something to keep his head off the stone. That might be true, but it doesn't seem to be the way people actually slept back then. 
All this actually says is he took a stone and put it at his head in some association with it. Protection to keep the wind off if the wind was blowing in a certain direction. Whatever. We don't know exactly. And that's not the important thing in the text. The important thing in the text is that the head symbolizes the person and the stone symbolizes Jacob's head. That's how these things work. You crush somebody's head, you crush the person. That's back in Genesis 3. The Nazarite takes a vow, he dedicates his head. At the end of the vow, he cuts off his head. By which we understand the meaning he cuts his hair. In Revelation 20, those who are beheaded for the kingdom's sake, an army of Nazarites dedicated to God. Now, Jacob's head then is the center of his person. The part that represents him, where the face is, and the stone being put there in association will represent Jacob. Just by putting it near, and that's filled out in the rest of the passage. Since we won't get to it all this week, I'll just do it here. Here's Jacob. In the dream, he sees the ladder to heaven, and Yahweh at the top, and angels coming down and going back up on him, on his head. And now that is parallel to this stone which has oil poured on it. The stone is Jacob. The oil poured on it is a representation of God's grace coming down on him the way it did in the dream. We'll explore that a bit more next week. But just to introduce it, practically speaking, Jacob just thought, well, I'll put a stone here to keep the wind off of me or to rest my head on or for whatever reason. But by the time the story is over, he's using the stone symbolically and doing something that we think is weird. If you had a dream and God appeared to you, would you say, oh, I think I'll go set up a stone and pour some olive oil on it? And we would not think that way. But then we didn't live back then. We didn't live in their symbolic world. So we have to enter into that world and say, what is the thinking here? And we can use the rest of the Bible to figure out what the thinking is. The dew that comes down on Mount Hermon is like the oil that comes on Aaron's head and runs down to his beard and is like the ladder to heaven with God's influences coming down on Jacob. That's the way the Bible thinks. And when you understand that, then you can understand putting oil on this stone, a picture of God's grace coming down, particularly on Jacob. And then we have a vision and we have a promise. The vision is in 12 to 13a. It's incredibly bad verse divisions here, but there you are. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, its top reaching the heavens. And behold, angels of God were going up and down on it. And behold, Yahweh was standing above it. Now your translation says, was standing over against him. You can do it that way, but the traditional translation that Yahweh was standing at the top of the ladder makes more sense and is defended by most commentators, and I think it's correct. Again, we have a dream. We want to compare that with Genesis 15, where God makes a covenant to Abraham in the dream. He's going to reassert the basics of that covenant here. A ladder. What is this ladder? The word ladder means a raised up thing. <laughs> and it can be a ladder, or it can be a mound, or it can be a pyramid. 
the words used for the highways. Remember the king's highway that runs through the land? The similar use of the word. Is this a ladder? Well, it might be. It might be what we think of as a ladder. Ladders certainly existed in the ancient world. If you wanted to lay siege to a city, you had to have ladders to try to get up against the wall of the city and climb over them. They knew how to make ladders. But given the fact of all the Holy Mountain associations and the comparison, the fact that we're obviously playing off the Tower of Babel incident here, most think that what we're seeing is a pyramid of some sort, a stepped pyramid, more likely. This looks like this. So from a distance, it would look like a ladder reaching up to God with angels coming up and down on it. Think of it that way, and I think you've got what the associations are and what you're supposed to think of. Then, as we've seen already, Jacob is the true Nimrod. He's the Gibor. He's the mighty man. He receives that promise intended for Esau and now given to him. Esau is another Nimrod, just like Nimrod, a mighty hunter. Jacob is given the blessing to be the Gibor, the mighty one. And so he's a true Nimrod. And the ladder is a true tower, or we can say even better, God is the true Nimrod, because God built this tower, Jacob didn't, and he builds it from the top down, whereas Nimrod built from the bottom up. Nimrod is the Pelagian, and Jacob is the Augustinian who receives the tower that's built down from heaven instead of trying to earn one up by his own good works. At any rate, that's the zone of associations here. And it's going to be important to the way the promise is done. Because one of the promises right here in this text is that all the nations will be blessed through you. All the nations were cursed through the original Tower of Babel and scattered and their tongues confused and their religions confused. And now all the nations will be blessed through the establishment of this true Tower of Babel, true place of worship, the true stone raised up with oil on it, the true holy mountain of true worship. So that's important association. What do we usually associate with the confusion of tongues at the Tower of Babel? What do we usually say is the undoing of that event? In Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2. What happens in Pentecost? What's the first thing... Yeah, stuff came down on the heads of all those guys. Now see, this is a Pentecost event here. It anticipates Pentecost in that it promises a reversal of the Tower of Babel and part of the imagery is stuff coming down on the head of this guy to bless him. So there's just shadowy, slight hints of future things that show up here and since we have the whole Bible we can see some of what the direction of it is. And then we see angels going up and down on it. Angels are going up from Jacob, and they're coming down. I think this indicates that Jacob had been praying. It could say the other way around. They are coming down from God and going up. But the fact that the picture seems to start, even though it's God who set this up, and he sets up this ladder starting in the heavens, yet the way it's moving, the angels are seen moving up, the escalator and coming down and not only does this indicate angelic protection on the journey but I think the fact that going up is mentioned first would indicate that Jacob 
has prayed and now an answer is coming. That's just implied. That's just implied. But if it's true, then it certainly fits with the language here. Jacob has prayed and now God is going to appear and send something down and give him an answer. Just to remind you, the angels meeting you when you go out in the wilderness, when Ishmael went out, God heard the voice of the lad as he wept, and God's angel, the angel of God, called to Hagar from heaven. That's exactly what we have here. Angels of God, and God speaks from heaven, from the top of the holy mountain, from the top of the pyramid. Well, that makes a good place to stop. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm